Hello, and welcome to the Two Real Cinema Club. I'm James Wazika. And I'm Andres Lorente. And at Two Real Cinema Club, we watch two movies, always one old and one new, and then we draw some comparisons between the two. Uh, this week, we're going to talk about everyone in the Matrix. Oops, that's... <laughs> <laughs> I read my title note. Sorry. Oops. We're going to talk about every, everything, everywhere, all at once. Do you want to restart? Yeah, we have. now we have to restart. No, that's good. No, no, that's good. I'm keeping that in. That's all right, good. All right. Keeping that. Uh, everything, everywhere, all at once, which features Michelle Yeoh. And then we um, also looked at The Matrix from 1999 yeah, with which... the great Keanu Reeves, great friend of the pod here. So we <laughs> yes. look forward to talking yeah, about his already, work again. We've... We've already waxed lyrical about him already. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and I want to start out, I want to address the controversy immediately. I was guilty of using a couple of expletives in the last episode. We heard from <laughs> someone, Spotify or something like that. So I am not going to say <laughs> at all during this show today. <laughs> I just said it. Oh, that's another 20 minutes of editing for me to do. It's oh, <laughs> Jimmy, I'm sorry. I'm really <laughs> sorry. I think we should pass it over to you, the clean-mouthed one. Right, okay. You're going to talk about everything, everywhere, all at once. I'm going to try and keep it clean. So, uh, everything, everywhere, all at once. This is this is, uh, this year's big A24 film. Uh, in fact, I think, uh, as of the pod at the moment, this is their highest-grossing international film ever. Wow. So, A24, new kind of indie darling producers. I say new, they've been around for... 10 years or more, I think. Um, Production company started by John Hodges, who I for a long time confused with John Hodge, who is the UK screenwriter of Train Spotting. So John Hodges, uh, American producer. Um, A24 produced a bunch of uh, medium to low budget movies. um, And this is their kind of biggest breakout hit so far. So uh, directed by two guys, Daniel Scheinart, and Daniel Kwan, uh, who worked together under the name of Daniels. Mm-hmm. I see a pattern there. Um, this is their second feature. They made Swiss Army Man a few years ago. Did you see that? I did not. I did not. Nope. Um, so kind of little kind of uh, very small absurdist comedy um, uh, about uh, a man and a corpse. As far as I can tell from the um, with Daniel Radcliffe playing the corpse. As far as I can tell from the Wikipedia um, summary, but I have I haven't seen it, haven't come across it. Um, so after that feature, they've moved up uh, into the big leagues. This film now produced by the Russo brothers um, stars, yeah, Michelle Yeoh, um, then Ki Hui Kwan, uh, Stephanie Su, Jamie Lee Curtis, James Hong. Um, so great uh, American Chinese cast. Uh, fantastic to see. Kiwi Kwan in it because I had to look him up afterwards mm. thinking I've never seen this guy in anything this is the guy who played short round in yeah. Indiana Jones yeah. uh, and the Temple of Doom yeah um, who apparently I was according to, to the internet he has had no work since 2002 wow um, and now it's come back in this and he's fantastic in this so the story is about um, Evelyn a woman in her 50s she's preparing her taxes for audit um, she runs a not very successful laundromat she's got tax problems it's her father's birthday and the controlling, unpleasant elderly father is turned up so his daughter can celebrate him. Um, she's coming to terms with her daughter being gay. Her husband wants a divorce. Everything in her life is falling apart. Um, and then when they go to the IRS with all of their tax forms to submit for the audit, uh, her husband uh, tells her that he is actually a visitor from another parallel universe and he needs Evelyn Um to summon all her energy to combat Jopo Tupaki, who is an evil force in his universe that's created something that will destroy everything. And to start with, Evelyn doesn't believe him, uh, because why would you? Um, but uh, as things become crazier and crazier, she learns to jump between parallel universes. She draws skills from her many, many other parallel selves uh, to confront Jopo Tupaki, who it turns out yeah, is a manifestation of her own daughter. Um, and the family fights it out uh, to try and save the universe. This is a, a remarkable, extraordinary, absurdist film. Um, bursting with energy, um, bursting with ideas, uh, never boring for a moment. I must say, it left me quite breathless. Did you feel the same watching this film? No. <laughs> 
No. No. Um, I, I agree with you on the, the energy for sure. And I, it's funny, I, I, I loved and hated this film at the same time quite passionately. I love the, there are a couple of ideas in this film that I really love. And I just felt like the, the way they were delivered for me didn't work because this is an attention deficit generation film. <laughs> um, so I, yeah. it's not that I, I don't think you're really supposed to follow it. And I was trying to follow it and it just, it, it's, it's two different realities of logic. So I couldn't really relate to it. I did. I sat through it. I definitely got through the whole film. I was in the theater, so big screen and all that. I think there are a lot of images, and there's a lot of talking. It's this rare film that has a little bit too much dialogue and too many pictures for me. Um, mm. Usually it's, something's just too talky or something's just like so stuck on its visual storytelling that it, it, it doesn't get you know the, the characters or their, their emotions, their thinking into it. It's just flashy pictures. And this one sort of had both. There are a lot of, you know, there's a lot of editing in this film. There are tons of images. There are tons of little streams through the multiverse to give you different pieces of story. But um, I live in an, an attention deficit, deficit household. I mean, we've got a lot of it here. So it's, it's kind of my everyday... Living and uh, I find it enervating to a certain extent. And that opening scene, I know it was supposed to do this, but it was so tense. And there was, as you just said, there's so much crap happening at the same time that I really started to feel anxious. I get anxious around that coming, that much you know, unfocused <laughs> energy. And I, that's exactly how I was supposed to feel. I got that, so I you know made it through the first ten minutes or so. But um, it set me off edge. I mean, the, the, my favorite scenes mm. in this film are when these two rocks talk, one rock talking to another one. I thought that was the best stuff. Um, and I realized it just came to this place where, oh, we're not rushing around trying to give you too much information. We don't have people uh, talking at you about all these big ideas that don't really make a, a, like a realistic conversation. Um, so I, it had a little bit too much dialogue and just def definitely too many images for me. But, you know, everybody else loves it. It's uh, really, really super fresh on, uh, on Rotten Tomatoes and all that. So I know that I'm probably missing something, but it's just not for my generation, I don't think, or my, um, my mindset somehow. So these, these guys who directed it, the Daniels guys, um, surprise, surprise, have come up through the pop video yeah. circuit. Yeah, yeah. And absolutely, it, you can tell because this movie is like a, a you know a hundred and twenty minute pop video yeah. with as many cuts and as many costume changes, you know, and as many um, ideas bursting out of the screen at you. And I suppose that is fun for three minutes. It does become kind of exhausting yeah. after two hours. Yeah. Um, there is a, the scene where the two characters just exist as rocks and the dialogue there is just be a rock. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah and I agree that is, there are other slow moments as well. Um, amongst the many universes that the characters visit during the film, one of them is the Wong Kar Wai universe, isn't it? Where, um, where Evelyn has become like a successful movie star and she meets yeah. her husband um, who's become a successful businessman and things are kind of very sedate and slow and yeah. a little bit soft focus. Um, and it's, you know, it's all uh, explicitly taken straight out of In the Mood for Love. Um, and uh, so it does sometimes slow down and catch its breath. Um, it's not utterly frenetic, frenetic all of the time, just 95% of the time. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, um, I'm sure there will be plenty of people for whom that really kind of... Um, that. Uh, hits the nail on the head for some people a lot of films contain too much talking and not enough action and you know, not enough costume changes and yeah. um, there will be an audience for this movie and, and people will be pleased by it i agree i found it exhausting yeah but not unwatchable mm. um i was still able to to drill down and 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 get into the characters and kind of appreciate the the story I think the main objection, the main problem I have about it actually is that this kind of many layered story, um, which is it's it's fairly explicitly a metaphor for the struggles of being um, a parent or of being an adult woman. Like quite early on in the movie, uh, Jamie Lee Curtis, who's Deirdre, this very sort of uh, dour IRS auditor, um, she looks at Evelyn and she says, oh, yeah, you seem to be involved in so many businesses. Uh, you know, you're a businesswoman, but also you're a singer and you're telling me you're a chef and you're a novelist and you're a teacher and you're a singing coach mm. and you're a massage technician. She was saying, how can you be all these things? And and it's you know very clear that what the film is pointing out, it's like that joke about, um, you know, what, what's it like being a mother? You know, you have to do all of these jobs and the pay is awful. This is yeah. this, what she's describing is the shape of, of, 
you know, contemporary motherhood yeah. or you know, of, of being a late middle-aged woman, being the kind of person who's traditionally has been very invisible uh, to cinema. Um, and here, you know, Jamie Lee Curtis you know, cleverly identifies in a single line of dialogue what the thrust of the film is, which is that you know, when you're a, a, a woman and a mother, you are required to play all of these roles and they're all inside you. My objection is that although the film is very successful as a metaphor and it enjoys all those layers and those levels, I don't think the film can also exist outside the space of a metaphor. It presents itself as a story about combat that was going to save or destroy the universe and this kind of great clash of multiverses. Um, and none of that really kind of makes any sense. The film does make sense when it's a metaphor, but it doesn't exist outside of being a metaphor. And so I think the fact that the story doesn't function on a straightforward representative face value level kind of diminishes the the message that you take away from it. You aren't allowed to go away from the film and realise, hey, you know, not only was there a, you know, a clever film about the multiverse and... Mm. Um, about uh, you know, this kind of great battle for Sumerian supremacy, but also it was a kind of reflection on modern life. It doesn't give you the breathing space to make that discovery for yourself. It hits you in the face with it directly as often as it can, um, uh, which I thought was a missed opportunity. I thought with a few tweaks and maybe a little bit more restraint, it could have got away with with having a foot in both camps, with being the metaphor and also being you know, a properly functional tale that actually makes sense yeah. without you realising that it's a metaphor. Yeah, I, I, so, uh, yeah, I agree with you 100%. I think you really hit the, the nail on the head there. Um, and for me, I felt like I had to go back afterwards thinking about it to drill in and find the ideas that I really loved. And I really did love some things in here. Um, I really liked um, this idea that we're, we're different people at different times, and when, when we're surrounded by different people, they bring out different things in us. So we're just constantly changing as humans, and I liked that. Juxtaposed against the really banal uh, day-to-day in the laundromat, there's this exciting world that she, she sort of lived parts of them. She was different people at different times or could be in other multiverses and universes. She'd be different. And I, I liked that idea a lot. I also love the... There's something very existentialist about it, and this is probably saying way more than the filmmakers would invest <laughs> in it themselves, but um, just each little choice in action um, exerts some sort of different outcome, and, and circumstances are always playing enormous roles in our life, and I, and I really liked that. Um, but there is this sort of central nihilism, too, in the, in the themes, too. I think um, there are t- two things. Like, you want the truth. I think she says this to her... Does her daughter say this to her or vice versa? Um, you want the truth? Nothing matters. I mean, that was a, that's kind of a big, even though there's all this crap going on, ultimately it's nothingness. Um, and I don't think they're really going to change anything. And I think when, when they're rocks, is it, they say we're all small and stupid. <laughs> so there's this sort of, um, yeah, there's this, I think there's a, there's nihilism in there. There's a lot of stuff going on. And I think for me, the biggest thing is that I had to, go back and almost retro-engineer my own ideas about the film because the delivery system was so wrong for me. It's just all this, <laughs> the shortcuts, the, the quick action, the, a lot of the fighting I find, you know, pointless. Um, so it's like, how do I want it? And I had this heroin um, metaphor where, you know, do I want to inject myself? No. Do I want to chase the dragon? No. Or do I want the suppository? Yes, I want the slow-acting <laughs> suppository. That's how I need my stories. especially. So, so if they are trying to attack big ideas, I want them... I want it to come out really directly from the filmmakers. I don't want to do all the work to try and find my own themes in it. I mean, I guess that's part of film is trying to make me think, but I don't want to think that much when I've got all this crap just being cut and cut and cut before my eyes again and again. So it was just the way that the information came to me. I think it would have, as you said, restraint. I think a bit more restraint, I would have taken away a lot more from this film and I would have loved it. As it was, I felt like it was definitely sort of the kind of work that Baz Luhrmann does. Another sort of, he's got these big projects, these big ideas, but he's a video maker. He makes music videos, which are supposed to be short and pointless, I think. So when you take two (laughs) hours and ten minutes of my time and you're going to just zap me with that again and again, it's just nothing is going to stick. I think that's the ultimate thing, is you want everything to work, and as a result, almost nothing works. I mean, I I see what you mean about the nihilism in the the film. I I felt that the nihilism was kind of a bit insincere mm. it felt a little bit like kind of teenage edgelord writing on reddit 
being a bit of a nihilist because yeah. you know it, it's offered as yeah, a solution. I agree. I agree. It just didn't. But, yeah. But then it's 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 withdrawn again very quickly, isn't it? Yeah. At the end, you know, the daughter, you know, says her goodbyes to the mother and says, "You know, that's it. I'm going to head off into the, you know, the the, the black hole of nothingness." And you know, and she only makes it in there for four or five seconds before the, the mother then just kind of grabs and yanks her back out again. Yeah. And you know, inevitably that's that's the destiny of the story and that's the story beat that has to happen. But at no point do you sincerely feel that she's really going to get dragged down by the nihilism or that she's going to end up in the in the black hole and we're gonna never see her again. Um you know, it, it it feels a little bit like kind of you know, showy nihilism. It's it's you know, nihilism on a t shirt yeah. to show off to your friends before going to bed early. Um, some of the outstanding things about the film, I must say, um, I think like, I, I think it's going to be a shoe in for the costume and makeup Oscars. Yeah, because uh, not only outstanding um, makeup uh, and costumes, but just so goddamn much of it. Yeah, <laughs> uh, so many costume changes, and you know, so many fantastical, amazing makeup jobs. You know, very inventive and fantastic. Um, Doing costume and makeup on this film must have been a blast yeah. because there was just so much to deal with. Yeah, um, it surprised me a little bit. Do you know how? Did you see how much this film was made for? I did not. I don't think so. Was would, it would you like million? to guess? I'm going to say sixty million, something like that. Well, so the the quoted figure yeah. um, that they say public is twenty five million. Wow. And I read that, and I I feel like this film simultaneously looks like it cost a lot more. Yeah. And a lot less. Yeah. Um, you know, there are so many setups and so many tiny micro scenes yeah. in different uh, different moments. There's, there's one scene where uh, Evelyn and Joy, the daughter, are fighting it out in a courtroom somewhere. Um, and it, you know, it lasts for two seconds and there's no dialogue. But they had to go to a courtroom and set yeah. up and do the lights and have all that set up just for this two seconds, just for 50 frames of the movie. Mm -hmm. So many setups like that it must be exhausting. I'm not surprised that they spent so much time and money on yeah. it. But on the other hand, so much of the film feels um, lo-fi, I think is the word, like the, the earpieces that they wear and the kind of the, the gooky glasses with lights on and... Mm -hmm the kind of the electronic displays and the fact that pretty much most of the action all happens in a single building. Everything happens yeah. in that IRS building yeah. kind of makes it feel like uh, if you told me they made the film for you know $2 million, I would have believed you. Okay, sure. Um, it feels like it could be one or the other. I mean, that's uh, that's very low for a film of that, you know, that size. And it's obviously going to make a lot of money. Um, yeah, I, mean, that's a, I suppose so, yeah. But so it's, just, it's, it's not a tremendously starry cast. And I can imagine, yeah, yeah. Jamie Lee Curtis doing it for you know, for scale because it's a fun project to be involved in. Yeah. Um, no no super high A-listers who are used to making $20 million a film because certain actors will make that much alone on a yeah, film. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, there, and there are, yeah, there are just so many moments that sometimes I thought, did they just shoot a lot of stuff and then sort of put the story back together after the fact or how much of that is like really scripted and because there, there felt like there were a lot of extraneous things. Some of them were really funny or wonderful, but the, the rubber finger stuff didn't make a lot of sense to me. <laughs> Rakakuni was clever. But these are things that ultimately, over the course of the film, they start to eat up some time. I mean, those are, you know, they probably spent three or four minutes at least on rubber fingers, raccoonie, maybe a little bit more yeah. than that, eating lipstick and strange things, thing, you know, strange <laughs> items to get back into the multiverse. There are a lot of, I mean, I love I, ridiculousness. I love farce and absurdity, but um, it didn't feel like a lot of it had purpose for me. And I think I more time really spent on hammering down on some of the, their their biggest themes and some of their bigger relationship. It's hard to get like a relationship between two characters when they're constantly changing. I think that's a real struggle because oh, you're, yeah. you're, you're really looking at one actress who's playing uh, four or five different versions of herself and, and the daughters, you know, has a different personality in each, each multiverse. So I think as a result, um, the story just sort of slips away from you because there's no, there's no one actor, one real character that you're, you're latching onto for the whole journey. And, that's just the problem with having such an inventive project, yeah. um, an inventive script. Is you know you can fill it with invention, but the inventions won't necessarily always feel relevant. Yeah, and you know it's that R word again, isn't it? It's the restraint to to cut away your favourite ideas. Isn't that what Dr. Johnson once said? He said, um, "Yeah, if you if you ever write a sentence of which you are truly proud, I hope you will have the good sense to cross it out." Yeah, it's about you know ideas is great, but you know you need to know which ones to cut out. Yeah. 
There was there was a little bit too much dildo based combat <laughs> for my taste. Thank you. All right. <laughs> Thank you for. Okay. I did, how did I not write that down? Because remember, we were talking about the Northman. I was saying, not enough dildo or penis. And in this film, there was too much. It was, too it, much. It's funny it was, for a moment. It's definitely funny for a moment. But when it, you know, again, it's just dialing it back and saying, okay, two seconds of the dildo is enough. 15, 20 seconds, uh, probably too much. Gives it that sort of pop music feel again, isn't it? You can imagine, oh, yeah, I bet there, was, there would be a, like a, you know, a, a pop video of three minutes of people fighting with dildos. Yeah. And, yeah that would be a really outrageous, <laughs> hilarious pop video. Yeah, and we get loads of press. That would be great. Yeah. But kind of, but four minutes of dildo fighting sandwiched yeah. into a feature film is just, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's three minutes and 30 seconds too much. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and it is a two-hour, 20-minute film, so it's not, a, you know, it's not a short film. This, I think it could have been 145 and been a classic, uh, just kind of cut down, streamlined, and really refined, but it, it starts to yep. show some yep. fat on the bone, I think, at, at about that point, the 145 point or so. It's funny. It's it's too much of too much, isn't it? Yeah. It's like eating too many too many cakes, and each of the cakes has twenty five layers. Yeah. Because oh, okay, maybe I could eat one of those cakes, or I could eat, eat a couple of simple cakes. But when you you know when you give me twenty five cakes, and each cake has so much icing, it becomes yeah. Yeah, exhausting. That's how I felt. But as as you say, maybe there is a you know a, a younger, uh, less patient audience the for whom this hits the mark. Yeah. Or an audience that is now used to that level of, you know, uh, of a barrage of, in, of images, I think. That's part of it as well. It is the TikTok uh, feature yeah. film. <laughs> That's what we've discovered, yep. But I have to say that um, of two of the ADD people in my house, one's 50-something years old and one is uh, 20, they loved it. Right. They loved it. So okay. I, I think mm, it does, yeah. I think, uh, you know, we, and I, I didn't talk to them a lot about it because I didn't want to do that before I did the pod, but um, I'm going to go back and talk to them about it a little bit more if they remember it. They also wouldn't remember a damn thing. That's the other thing. That's, that's, that's the ADD <laughs> thing. So it's great. These films are great for people who have no memory. I um, I must say there's, there's one film um, that this movie really reminded me of um, with the kind of the, the scenes where they're scurrying around office cubicles yeah. um, and the scenes where characters are taking over bodies. Yeah. And the scenes where they learn Kung Fu overnight. There's a lot in this film that draws from the Matrix. Yeah. Um, so it's yeah fascinating to see that you know the effect of the Matrix is still echoing down the halls of cinema um, 23 years after it was made. Um, why don't we have a break oh and uh, we'll come back then and we'll talk about the mother of this film, uh, the Matrix, and see whether we can spot the, spot the joins. Do you understand? We are back after Jimmy's silky smooth transition from everyone everywhere all at once into the Matrix. Um, speaking of the Matrix as being uh, perhaps a parent or step parent of uh, the previous film. Um, the Matrix was released in 1999. I think it was in March of 1999. I was living in Colorado at the time and the, uh, the shooting at Columbine High School happened weeks later and the two teens had dressed up with long jackets and they had just seen that film dozens of times before they um, killed I think 13 people and themselves um, so at the time I don't I did see it after that event it was a little bit shocking because I was working in a school at the same time as well so um, it hit pretty hard uh, it was controversial but I think I the only time I saw this film was in the theater and honestly mm-hmm. I probably would not have seen it again if you hadn't um, paired it so beautifully with uh, the previous film um, but I do remember, you know, thinking, uh, yeah, th- there's some ground being broken here. And, um, it was done by the Wachowski brothers at the time, Larry and Andy, who are now Lana and Lily Wachowski. Um, right. I remember reading a lot about them, but they weren't doing interviews at all. Um, mm. and uh, I remember that they were painters, they were sort of like construction people and, and painters at the time, but they had been working on these scripts for Lots and lots of time, I think, uh, really imbuing it with lots of myth and religion. There's tons of religion in this film that I want to talk about. Yeah. Um, so it came out in 1999. Of course, it is the film of Neo, who's the one. It starts out with people talking about Neo as being the one. Um, Trinity is played by, is it Kate Moss? I always forget my Moss. Car- Carrie Ann Moss. Carrie Ann Moss, that's right. So much Moss. 
Kate, Kate Moss's older sister. Elizabeth right. Moss. Okay. Um, she plays uh, Trinity, a woman who's hacking and kicking ass in some office building when Hugo Weaving, who is Agent Smith, uh, sneaks in creepily because uh, apparently she's doing something bad in their world, hacking into the system, and she's part of a revolutionary group headed by Morpheus, played by Lawrence Fishburne. Um, I think one of the things that attracts everybody or impresses everyone immediately is the, f- the photographic style. It's some sort of um, uh, slow motion or stopgap visual style. I think I read somewhere they called it something bullet. Bullet time. Bullet yeah. time. Bullet filming. time photography, so it, yeah. It's jumpy. It was very eye-catching at the time. We've, we've seen it since then, and I think it has influenced a lot of um, commercial directors and filmmakers yeah. since. Um, Neo, Keanu Reeves' character, is inside the Matrix, but he doesn't know it. Um, he's told to follow the White Rabbit, and that takes him to a nightclub where he meets Trinity, who's obviously a hacker, and I think Neo's some sort of hacker as well. And she brings him along, um, which through a lot of ponderous dialogue and it's very slow moving compared to the whole action ethos of the film you get some of these dialogue scenes that are really kind of on the nose and corny in places we'll talk about some of the final dialogue pieces that were just hard to swallow but um they talk in this bar and she's trying to get him into morpheus's group of um uh, rebels um and morpheus sort of earns his trust by helping neo get out of the he sort of navigates himself right out of the um, out of trouble, but into the hands of Agent Smith. Um, and the Smith character, you could say he's a number of characters. Um, he's sort of an artificial intelligence, like char- just a characterization of bad guys. Though. This really struck me as just <laughs> over the top. They've got the, the glasses, the earpieces, the stilted way of speaking, and they are very menacing. And of course, the, but I think the, their actions would be much more menacing than their appearance. Like when he, when Neil loses his mouth, and they put this yeah. probe into his body so that they can trace him. That stuff is great. But I think it's, it's undercut. It's body horror, isn't it? What's that? Yeah. Proper body horror, that yeah. sequences. That stuff's great. And I think it's undercut by the just ridiculousness of the uh, the Agent Smith's characters and, and his twins. And you never meet really the other ones. Um, so he knows, uh, now Neo sort of knows that there's, there's something really um, nefarious about this Matrix thing. And that Morpheus and Trinity and this, his team... Uh, or their team can show him about the Matrix. And there's a lot of this uh, talk about you are a slave and uh, you need to fight for your freedom sort of language, but they really see him as being uh, really a Christ figure, uh, figure who can sort of save them from the Matrix and these uh, intelligence agents. Um, the blue pill and the red pill, Morpheus gives him a choice. I'm not yeah. sure what would really happen if he... I, mean, I don't know why he needs to eat a pill. Maybe you can explain this to me, but this is... He's he's offered the chance to like live in the nat- matrix blissfully by eating the blue pill, but I think he could just not eat the pill and still live in the matrix. That was the thing. I, <laughs> yeah, that's true. Or he can eat the red pill and help um, all of humankind, or what sort of what exists of it. And this is Keanu Reeves just a few years after he kicked Dennis Hopper's ass in Speed. He's not going to eat the blue pill. We know that he's going <laughs> to eat the red pill and go kick ass. And he literally walks through a door into the sort of second act, meeting new characters um, as soon as he's eaten that red pill. Um, Jimmy, any take on that? The blue pill, red pill, does it matter? I mean, the red pill seemed to have like sent him into a brief coma or something like that so that he could recover from the Matrix life, and then he begins this massive training session to become an ass-kicker. What, what was your take on that? There's a kind of like pseudo-scientific explanation, isn't it? Like, oh, the, the, the red pill will stabilize your brain waves mm-hmm. so that we can start a trace or something. It's all, yeah, it's yeah. all kind of sci-fi mumbo-jumbo. Um, there's uh, one of the um, modern interpretation or reinterpretations of the matrix is that it's about the trans experience isn't it oh. and supposedly the red pill is the same color as the estrogen therapy i think oh. that some trans people take uh, okay. or it might be testosterone or something like that. but i think i think um, some people have drawn a parallel there they're saying oh well that's the reason why it's a red pill oh. red red pilling has become you know such a, a popular meme now hasn't it yeah. it's become a, a kind of a byword for for uncovering a, a hidden truth, which has been used by you know, all sorts of groups, uh, you know, uh, the, the kind of the, the the men going their own way kind of movement have sort of uh, opt co opted this red pill idea, mm. and it's a synonym for going down the YouTube rabbit hole and becoming radicalized. Uh-huh. So it's one of those ideas. Okay. I, I think it's um, it's you know such a clear little visual yeah. um, 
moment that it's easy to co-opt, isn't it, yeah. by kind of any ideology. It's, yeah. You know, it's, it's, these guys should be doing adverts because, you know, you're, they're transmitting complicated ideas and very simple images yeah, yeah. that everyone will remember. So he's accepting the mission, basically. He's going to move on as the hero. Um, he's reborn. He's cleansed. He goes through this transformation stage, which involves just extreme acupuncture. At one point, the guy's got 500 <laughs> needles in him. Of yes. He gets on to Morpheus's hovercraft, sort of reminds you a little bit of uh, the Millennium Falcon or, Falcon or something like that. Um, and their outside world is decidedly like rustic and low tech. The earth as it is seems to have been destroyed by war. It's really unlivable on the surface. Um, but they're living in this interestingly low tech or retro uh, hovercraft um, compared to the Matrix, which is clean and looks like our modern world. Um, he learns that machines are kind of in control of humans and that they actually grow us and cultivate um, our energies to power themselves. So they're sort of keeping us alive in these um, primordial stew pods and, and just <laughs> sucking us for energy and life. Um, but that Neo, they think, is the second coming of a savior. He's going to free the humans. There's just so much religiosity in this film. The Zion is the yeah. homeland for the people waiting to return to the normal world. We've got... Trinity is one of the characters' names. Yeah. Um, there's a Judas character I'll talk about here in a little moment. Um, lots of uh, religion. There's an oracle as well. So they're sort of doing the hodgepodge of, uh, of you know, religious thought and putting it in there for you know symbolism and storytelling purposes. Um, this crew of re revolutionaries, they've been sort of waiting for Neo, and now they've got him. They're using the Matrix. They're training him using the Matrix. So um, we talked about the training scene in... Uh, in everywhere and uh, everywhere all at once. Um, similarly, here he likes. They're using the Matrix. He's literally learning uh, Taekwondo and Karate in, in seconds, and sort of getting that programmed into his mind. Um, the midpoint comes, and he's been taken to the Oracle, who I think she has open your eyes, free your mind. So a lot of these same themes about being a slave. Yeah. Um, and they're they're iterated throughout. So I mean, I think they do a pretty good job of really hammering their their messages uh, home in this film. Um, it turns out that Smith is like a sentient program. They're the monsters inside the Matrix. They're sort of gatekeepers. The actual machines that control the humans are really weird. They're like enormous, uh, not like a squid, but almost like a swimming yeah, firefly or something. Or something. Like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, robot octopus. Yeah, yeah. They, they're they're scary. They're large. They seem to be large because at yeah. one point they're on top of the hovercraft and. Um, but it seems like the the hovercraft was actually, I think, in their sewer systems. Did I get that right? They're like floating around in the sewer systems. I think so. Like this, this kind of some kind of yeah, big underground yeah. tunnels. I don't know whether they specify, but yeah. Yeah. Um, so they're flying around, um, exploring things, and I guess really mostly hiding from the 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 machines. Um, and then a sort of a Judas character, the Cipher character, uh, is going to betray Neo. It's classic um, biblical stuff, and turn him over. He wants to. I don't know what the machines are promising him, but there's this scene where Smith is saying, um, you'll have a great life. And, and the Matrix can be fantastic. It's just illusion. You can, you know, he's talking about eating steaks, delicious steaks. He can do whatever he wants uh, in the Matrix, but he will be a slave. So he's sort of trading this idea that he has with a freedom with Morpheus's group for just living well in the Matrix. Um, and then there's one thing that really bugged me was all this time wasted on is he or isn't he questions of Neo's authenticity. It happens through the first two-thirds of the film, really. They're still not sure if he's the one, so they're trying to put that out there. But it's Keanu Reeves in the film. Of course he's the one. <laughs> of course he's the uh, one. <laughs> so I was a little irritated by that because it just it was like this false drama. Um, Morpheus sacrifices himself for Neo, more uh, biblical stuff, I'd say. He's the god of sleep and dreams, is Morpheus in, in, in the myth world. Right. Um, lots of harsh martial arts, lots of gunfire, and then... Um, Morpheus ends up being captured. Uh, the machines are probing him for intelligence because they want to bring down Zion. I guess Zion's a threat because these are free humans underground trying to um, take over, or, like reclaim Earth or reclaim their own civilization. Uh, Neo at this point is outside the Matrix. He wants to go back into the Matrix to rescue Morpheus. Trinity insists on going along, um, which begged me to think, if the Matrix is so fake, why is there real pain and real human agency in it? That bugged me. It's like you can, if you get ah. punched in the Matrix, you feel it through your wiring into the real world. Or if you bleed, uh, you might start spitting up blood in your in your real world, even though that thing happened to you in the Matrix. So just um, 
didn't that didn't rub me the right way. I don't think it felt like if you're right. if you're in the matrix, you should just be in the matrix. You would I think lose consciousness. It seems like these guys have figured out a way to maintain consciousness when they're in the matrix, but that doesn't do the physical thing. I can't imagine blood coming through your yeah, body because of, they, you're connected. They dismiss it slightly with by you know some kind of. Um chin strokey comments about how you know the, the the mind can't the body can't survive without the mind yeah. if you're hurt there you're hurt here yeah i, I see what you mean yeah. i i was i was happy to accept the rules because they'd explained the rules so i was happy yeah. just to kind of to go along with it because well yeah, i felt like the people making the film knew what the rules yeah. were and they did explain to they, me what the rules were and i was happy to they accept give you a line it. Of it was dialogue. just part of my suspension yeah. disbelief good good work um so the question was, like, do we have any agency as humans? I thought that might be one of the messages that they're trying to get at, is that we might think we can do stuff, but then we might choose not to do stuff, or we really can't change anything because these other machines, higher powers, are really um, at play here. Um, Smith calls humans a virus, a plague, and the machines are the cure. That was pretty crazy. Good connection to the other film, I thought, in terms of sim we're simple and stupid people. <laughs> um... <laughs> Okay, I think the, the problem that, in terms of the... I, I can't take this film out of 1999. It's just, I mean, it's... Right. So, yeah, these guys look great. When they pick up guns, they've got the glasses on, the long jackets. They make killing look really cool. Um, and that's... And it just... It sort of sells the violence and the acrobatics and the guns and lots of guns. Um, so that's the thing that I can't take away is because it had a definite effect on um, this one pair of kids who went Real out people. and just... Uh, wreaked in tremendous violence on totally innocent people. So I can't take it out of that because that is definitely, it looks, they look fantastic. It's really sexy killing. There's lots of stuff blowing up and they're doing crazy kung fu moves and flips during it all and avoiding bullets, but um, it's, it's definitely super violent. Um, there's one scene where I thought they were trying to rescue Morpheus, but they were shooting up that office so bad I don't, I don't see how he didn't take a bullet <laughs> in that barrage. <laughs> Um, but he makes it. He breaks his chains. It's a very, very sort of big moment, um, and he runs right into uh, Neo's arms. He saves him. They helicopter him out of there. Um, and so a couple of the, uh, Neo ends up getting in trouble with Agent Smith and getting beat up really badly, and he's almost dead. And then it's this. This this moment just killed me. This is um when Trinity kisses. Neo in their real world on the hovercraft, and that brings him back to life in the Matrix. And there's a lot of corny <laughs> love language there, but she saves him with this kiss, um, even though they haven't kissed in real life yet. Um, and then Neo imagines, manages to defeat the machines in the Matrix. He's definitely the one now. He's shown just amazing uh, martial arts skills, and um, he's using his mind to like stop bullets and stuff like that. So he's definitely he's the one. I knew that earlier in the film, but they found out later. <laughs> I knew him before he was the one. Yeah. Um, and, oh, God, one of my favorite lines was, there is no spoon. That's when they're uh, going. He's learned this from the, a child who's using his mind to move things or make them disappear or realize that they're not there in the first place. I think they're, what, they're using the, the elevator, some sort of counterbalance to bring them up, and they're on this. They're basically rappelling up, yeah. I suppose, and he says, there is no spoon, and then they just zoom up to the top, <laughs> ready to kick ass up there. Um, and then the last scene seemed like a setup for the future things. Uh, he's back in the Matrix, I think. He's ready to, to, like, disturb things anew. He's got the glasses on, the long leather coats, and he can fly now. Um, so he's obviously going to be <laughs> uh, instrumental in saving the Earth again and again. So um, that's long-winded i suppose but there's a lot here um not nearly as much as um everyone everywhere um it it's quite it's quite a simple story it's really quite focused i think um so i i give them props for that um and just tremendous like acrobatics and um fight scene choreography there was one thing about the choreography that hit me wrong it felt dated somehow um Oh. And I think it was because it was the, the the choreography is really strong, and then the camera style, the cinematography, and that style is really really strong. And as a result, it felt really slow, so it felt kind of ah. stayed dated and stiff somehow. Like it's obviously they had rehearsed this, the fight scenes a bunch, but then they're also cut in such a way that um, fast cuts actually kind of slow it down somehow for me. It was very strange. So 
And it's at a point where they're really putting all their chips in on this being a fight film. I mean, this is a this is basically a martial arts film uh, for probably you know the third act and and earlier parts as well. Um, so they're really yeah. putting their chips in on it, and it felt a little dated and a little stiff to me. And I don't know if you felt that way, but um, it obviously influenced the industry uh, thereafter. It did. I mean, I one of the little remarks I wrote down thinking about this film was that after Die Hard came out in 1988, mm-hmm. um, Hollywood spent 10 or 11 years basically remaking Die Hard, and we got every version of Die Hard. We got Die Hard yeah. on a boat, Die Hard yeah. on a bus, Die Hard on an airplane. Um, every, you know, everything was Die Hard until The Matrix, and then The Matrix was um, such a turning point that then we've we've had another you know ten or more years after The Matrix of people then remaking The Matrix, yeah. and it was so influential and that whole kind of bullet time, yeah, guns and martial arts kind of feel then seemed to crop up in so many films yeah. and it seemed to be um, so very very influential. It doesn't feel like it's, you know, it, it, it took until I think you know the Marvel movies, you know, sort of. Um, overtook the box office before we've started to see films that aren't quite so directly lifted from the Matrix. Sure. I, my, I, I can exactly see how um, living in the US and seeing this film at the time that you did mm-hmm. would really colour your experience. Watching this film in Europe, where thankfully you know, where we, you know, we don't have a great deal of gun crime, yeah. um, I, I think this film is perfectly shaped. Okay. Um, it's it, it kind of it hits all the marks. It's like um, uh, I, I think anybody who wanted to learn how to write a, a film could could do a lot worse than sitting down and watching The Matrix and write down what happens in every scene because it's so very very tightly structured. Yeah. I think it's um, you know it's uh, you're extreme. It's like a textbook. I think yeah, um, and I think it's a. a great example of something which i remember you telling me years ago which is um if you fail to prepare then prepare to fail yeah. that it's been you're know, very meticulously um prepared this film um reading up about the production um i think the wachowskis found it so hard to explain to people what it was they wanted to do that they um paid to comic artists that they worked before to do a 600 page oh, yeah. storyboard oh, wow. and it's an extremely detailed storyboard of the entire film from the start to the finish um and you can see pages of this online it's you know it's it's um you know a very detailed high quality piece of work and you can tell that i think they um took this storyboard and they shot what was on the storyboard yeah. and they knew exactly where they were going to put the camera and what they were going to do and how they were going to light it you know, before they got onto set. Um, so I think the film really has that, that feel of, of being extremely tightly controlled. Everything happens for a reason. You know, nothing has been improvised. Um, nothing has been worked out at the last minute. There's no lucky coincidences or happy accidents. Um, they knew exactly what they were going to do and they did exactly the thing that said on the paper. And in this case, you know, because it was so meticulously planned, you've ended up with a meticulous film. Um, there's there's a whole bunch of themes um, and motifs mm-hmm. um, that kind of come in again and again and again that this kind of they riff on to dreams and waking. Yeah. You know, they fetishize telephones, the color green. There's this kind of visual motif of falling water and falling drops that comes up again and again and again. And once Crying you start bullets. looking for it, you see, yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so it's just it's kind of it's it's stitched tightly into into you know, every opportunity where they they can present it. It's um it's a very very dense, internally reflective, um, meticulous, detailed, planned out movie, and I think that is a lot of the reason of why I find it so. Uh, watchable every time I've seen it and I think I've seen this film seven or eight times now every time I see it I spot a new detail that I didn't realize um, was there last time uh, just watching it I watched it this afternoon before doing the pod and um, I recognized that um, the scene where Keanu Reeves has to for the first time he does the jump program where he jumps from one building to another yeah. um and uh, all the people watching saying, oh, he's not going to make it. And he doesn't make it and he falls down. And then at the end of the movie, when he has to rescue Morpheus and Morpheus is running out of the building to jump into the helicopter. And then Keanu Reeves says, he's not going to make it. I'm going to have to catch him. Mm-hmm. That um, I'd, I'd never noticed that, you know, that little parallel before. Then the film is, will still be full of dozens of other details that I won't have, have spotted before. Um, 
so I think from that point of view, um, it's a, a masterclass. I do think, though, for the first time, um, I, I think we ought to have a regular a regular slot on this pod, which is called Are We the Baddies? Because mm. this is, I think, it's another film where I've got to the end and I thought, did the heroes in this film actually do anything good? You know, come the end of the film, as far as people who are citizens of the Matrix are aware, Keanu Reeves and his guys have just turned up and killed an awful lot of people and destroyed an awful lot of property. You know, and they've, you know, well, they've kind of managed to rescue their buddy, um, and one of them has learned how to fly. But overall, they haven't improved the quality of life for anybody in the Matrix. And they've just messed things up terribly. Yeah. Um, it doesn't take a great uh, shift of perspective for you to start to think, you know what, actually, maybe Keanu Reeves and his gang, for all them wearing the cool clothes and having the cool moves and doing the martial arts and having these very quotable little lines of dialogue, um, for all the great stuff, yeah, these guys are probably actually the baddies and they're not necessarily a force for good, not within this film. The people who are trapped in the Matrix well, don't seem terribly unhappy. You know, if we believe the conceit of the film, then the people who are trapped in the Matrix are just like you and me. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure that we're crying out to be rescued and, and dragged out to live in, in a, a hovercraft in a sewer where we have to eat slop from a tube. Mm -hmm. So uh, yeah, maybe Keanu and his gang, they are the baddies. I, I liked so much of what you said about um, preparation because it does feel really prepared. Um, and I, I, you know, I really sympathize with them because I know they worked, you know, jobs that they probably didn't want to be working, painting and, and laboring. But they, you know, they had this dream going and they, they really worked on it in terms of like refining it with all these elements of myth and mythology and religion. It becomes sort of stronger and stronger. So it's definitely a well-prepared film. It's a well-executed film. Um, and I love a lot of the themes. I mean, I love this idea of these other creatures controlling our minds, which, you know, that's that's sort of like the really big idea. Um, but it's interesting that they use so much religion about it because I, I, I think of, you know, God as being the same sort of thing, controlling ah. us, that even, even if it's divided into lots of different religions. So I love that idea, and I think they do a pretty good job of that. And they do, they are, it, it might get a little frustrating hearing the same messages come out in dialogue again and again, but their messages are very clear, I think. Um, so I respect that about the film for sure. And I'm glad you. I'm glad you talked about the, like that level of preparation. Um, I think at times, you know, there's this fine line where it becomes too, too prepared to the point where it's not doesn't feel very spontaneous. There doesn't yeah. feel like there are yeah. a lot of really new and totally different ideas in there. But I, I do love that idea of um, other beings having control. And I think ultimately, the the more realistic uh, theme that comes out is that. And it's, I think we suffer more from it now. It's just this this being uh, ruled by technology to a certain extent or being ruled yeah, by co yeah. corporate overlords who are just distracting us with crap while <laughs> there's some insidious stuff happening in the background and yeah. great stuff. And I think that comes through pretty strong that the creatures themselves I thought were kind of strange, but hey, it's, it's you know, this kind of sci-fi, um, I don't know, art deco sci-fi thing going on and yeah, it works pretty well. Yeah, the design is good. Yeah, yeah. I, think, I think it's fine. Um, I, I do agree that the, the obvious um, interpretation of the theme seems to me, to, I mean, I don't know, I, I see the whole world through this kind of, this kind of studenty Marxist lens, but to me it feels like a, you know, it's a story about um, the ideals of Marxism, isn't it? Because, yeah. you know, it's about um, freeing the proletariat and it's about, yeah. um, you know, having uh, superiors who, yeah, who control you and then use the use the fruits of your labor they literally use your energy you know, yeah. um, gradually sucking the life out of your body for their own purposes so it does yeah. seem very kind of marxy but there's uh, there's something sort of generic enough about the way the story is presented that you can kind of a, turn it into a metaphor about almost any struggle or any any truth yeah which perhaps is why it's you know it's been popular with with you know the right and it's you know been popular with um, you know, a lot of different ideologies. You could, you know, it, ha it has that strength a little bit like the Bible, where you know you could. It's vague enough that you can use it to back up almost any idea. And twenty-three years later, who would have thought uh, um, we'd still be wrestling with these machines? I guess <laughs> probably predictable. <laughs> I hope yeah. they're not those big octopus things, but uh, <laughs> we are still doing battle. So I, th I think it's you know it's wonderful in the sense that they also managed to look forward. I think quite a bit in terms of. Uh, 
like the the internet in particular, which was pretty young at that time, 99. Yeah. I mean, I figure they're writing this in 95, 96, you know, where the internet's barely a thing. And, yeah. and you do have those images of uh, we're stuck in this, these falling digits, all this sort of binary code kind of in green falling from the sky and all those other rain kind of images. Like, we're in it. Yeah, we're definitely we in it. Right I, I think they do a good job with, with those sorts of images and that that feel that there's something out of our control and we can either look at it, open our eyes and see it for what it's worth, or we can just live blissfully in it, the ignorance. <laughs> and continue to, yeah, continue to spend. Um, famously, I think Will Smith was approached to be Neo before Keanu Reeves took the role. And I, wonder, I wonder what the film would have turned out like if Will Smith had been Neo and whether we would still be talking about it now. Yeah. I mean, he's a very watchable actor, but he's very different to Keanu. Keanu, you know, Keanu already feels so stilted in so many ways to me. He's not, he's not like, for me, he's not like a natural actor where he just seems comfortable. More, more or less seems like he's living his own caricature somehow. And so a lot of the fight scenes where he's sort of stepping into position felt really awkward to me. I mean, obviously <laughs> worked really hard and trained really hard, but it never seems quite natural for me. Um, he's got the great looks. He's, you know, got the voice, um, but it was, it's funny, he still never feels to me totally comfortable in that role. So it's I think maybe Will Smith would have been a bit more natural because yeah. just a little cooler. Like, Keanu's already cool, so when he's can playing cool, it's almost like it cancels his cool. <laughs> I don't know if that makes sense. Um, it's funny, the I Matrix has kind, it's kind of defined the whole of the rest of Keanu's career, hasn't it? Now? Because, yeah. Oh, God, yeah. yeah. Now that he's doing kind of John Wick, it's it's just sort of, you know, Neo wearing a different hat. It's Yeah. Um. Very uh, influential film. Um, I think still very watchable film. Yeah, but a film that also carries a heavy legacy, which is probably worth remembering. Yeah. Um, I haven't shown my children The Matrix. I think, I wonder whether it's still you know, a little bit too violent for a 12 and a 14 year old. There is quite a lot of violence in this film. And it's, yeah, it's right up there in your face. It is. And it's, and to a certain extent, it's a dangerous violence because you've got these these mythical figures who are trained and you've got these sentient programs. So no one dies. There's very little blood actually in this film. Um, and people sort of seem just, you can take on a new per personality. So it's, it has this sort of, uh, again, it's almost a Christian thing, this life after death feel like there's no such thing as really dying. And <laughs> it's people don't really die when they get shot up like that. So I think that's kind of a dangerous die, die, uh, dangerous violence because there are no consequences to it. Yeah, yeah that is true, isn't it? Well, I, I think The Matrix, yeah, still an interesting film to watch. Um, has a slightly different flavor in 2022 than it did in 1999. Yeah. I was glad to go back and see it. I mean, it had literally been probably 23 years since I saw it, and um, it was good to go back and see it again. I, I haven't seen it six or seven times like yourself, and I probably won't see it again, but... Um, it was good to see and good to appreciate the strong elements in it, I think. So um, I would say I think both of these films are worth seeing. Um, I probably won't watch them again. That's my taste. But I, I think if you dig at it a little bit, you can really pull out some good some good themes and good lessons from each film. Yeah. If you're going to watch uh, everything everywhere all at once, uh, wait until you get it, can get it uh, like a home version so you can watch it at half speed. <laughs> <laughs> Slow it down to the speed of human thought. Yeah. <laughs> It'll only be four hours then, but um, <laughs> you'll understand yes. it. Yeah, yeah, spread it out over four evenings. Right, this has been the Two Real Cinema Club. Um, we're coming back into the real world here. Uh, thanks yes. again for, uh, for joining us, and uh, we will see you for the next episode. Thanks and goodbye. Goodbye, everyone. Open your eyes. <laughs>